I hope you have your Bibles with you tonight. I would like for you to uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter number 2 and uh, verse number 18. Last week we uh, taught from the Word of God on how people grow spiritually. What uh, are the factors that come together to enable and help us to grow spiritually? And uh, today uh, uh, the title of our Bible study is uh, All the Lonely People. All the lonely people. And of course, we're uh, during the last week and the next couple of weeks, we're giving context for the small group ministry that we're going to be entering into, why uh, the purpose uh, of our small group ministry, and why we believe as leaders of Life Church that this is such a significant, important step and a direction for us. And we want you to get it as well. So we're going to give you some scriptural basis. Last week, we talked about um, how people grow spiritually. This week, we're going to talk about all the lonely people. And uh, next Wednesday night, we're going to teach on releasing the army. Releasing the army. Now, what if an army was uh, continuously in boot camp, always being trained, but never being sent out on a mission? After a while, people would get discouraged, wouldn't they? If they were simply being trained continuously and they were never released to do what they were trained to do, and the same is true of the church. I think I believe that sometimes we're guilty as leaders in the church uh, of continuously preparing and equipping people for ministry, but not giving them a mission and giving them opportunities to exercise that ministry. And this is what's going to happen during 40 days of purpose. You are going, every single one of you is going to have an opportunity uh, to, uh, um, uh, to execute ministry and see ministry happen in your life. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18. And this is a passage of scripture that is many times referenced referring to marriage at a wedding ceremony or in marriage counseling and it obviously is very clearly um, applicable in this regard but I believe the application of this verse of scripture goes well beyond simply a discussion on marriage Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 it says and the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is the creative narrative, the creation narrative. And in the first chapter, the book of Genesis, seven times did the Lord say, it is good. Six times he said it is good. One times he said it's very good. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word, Lord God. We thank you for your wonderful people. I pray, Jesus, that you would enable me, Lord God, to effectively and concisely declare the word that you've put in my spirit, Lord God, the word that's the word for the hour, Lord Jesus, the word for the moment for life, church. Uh, Lord Jesus, cause us to receive it with open hearts, with eager hearts, Lord. In the name of Jesus, let us leave here transformed in our thinking and ready to execute your purpose, Lord Jesus, in our community. In the name of Jesus, we ask. And everybody said, Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you, and you may be seated. How many have ever enjoyed a pastry or a coffee or a tea or a drink of some sort from Starbucks. Raise your hand if anybody in here has been to Starbucks before. All right. There's a number of you that have been to Starbucks, and surprisingly, there's a number of you that haven't been to Starbucks or your arm is broken. I don't know. 
But uh, Starbucks is uh, a phenomenon in America uh, and even throughout all uh, throughout the world uh, of a company that found a niche and expanded itself over and over and over again until it became ubiquitous. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? That word simply means present everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see another Starbucks. There's one thing about Starbucks that uh, is very interesting, and uh, it was written on one of their, uh, a placard near where you would doctor up your coffee if you went into Starbucks, and it said, career opportunities. For a while it said, career opportunities. Then it said, create community. Make a difference in someone's day. And uh, then on the other side of, uh, uh, of the placard, it said, creating an environment where friends and neighbors can get together and reconnect while enjoying a great coffee experience. The point is, the people that came up with the Starbucks experience or the concept of Starbucks coffee realized that there was something missing in American society, and it wasn't coffee, because there's plenty of coffee. There's plenty of places to purchase coffee. But what was missing in American society, and they found a way to satisfy or fill in the gap in what was missing, was that uh, there was a missing environment for connections and relationships. And uh, they referred to the Starbucks experience as using coffee to promote connection. And everything about... I. I read an, uh, a book, very interesting book one time that told the story, tells the story of the Starbucks company. Everything about how they create the environment of the coffee shop, um, they are intentional to create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable lingering. They feel like they're at home, away from home, and they feel comfortable sitting around, staying and connecting because they realize that selling coffee was not what they were doing, but they were using coffee to promote connections and promote relationships. And oftentimes, uh, when I want to meet with somebody, the question is, where do you want to meet? We've got to get together. We've got to discuss something. The answer many times is, let's meet at Starbucks. See, Starbucks understood that we are a culture that is craving relationships. A culture that is craving relationships. You may not believe me at this point, but you will hopefully as I reinforce this point. Um, now, architects that design and build homes, I don't know if you noticed, but home styles change over the years. And the, the type of homes that they're building today are not the type of homes they were building in the 50s or in the 30s or the 20s. But many architects currently design homes to promote privacy and seclusion. Homes are designed in such a way that they promote privacy and seclusion. Now before the old days, homes would be built with a front porch. Everybody say front porch. What was a front porch? It wasn't just an, uh, a piece of the architectural design, but a front porch more specifically was a place for casual conversation and a cold drink. It was basically, the, the front porch was that zone between the public and private. Inside my home is public, 
outside my home is private and the front porch is that connection place for my neighbors and people around the street that can stop by for casual conversation and a cold drink. And this was part of the American culture or the American dream. The front porch represented the ideal of community in America. Now, in the 21st century in which we live, homes are designed differently. They're designed for privacy and seclusion. Seldom do homes that are designed today have front porches because people have been around people all day. They've been making decisions. They've been jostling in the crowd, if you would, talking to person after person. And they want to come home, put the garage door down, and escape. And uh, if they want to go outside, they don't go to the front porch, but they go where? They go to the the backyard or the patio in the backyard. Not out to the front porch, but inside. And they plop down in front of a television or a, a a DVD player, a VCR, or plop down in front of the computer. And uh, after a long day of work and a crowded commute to and from work, they don't want to see any more people. They don't want any more questions, no more interactions, no more decisions to make. I've got to retreat. I've got to get away from it all. And we are especially this way in the metropolitan area that we live in, in Los Angeles. There's such a high pressure, high stress, so many people. I'm going to get home. I'm going to get away from it all. I'm going to avoid people at all costs. And we do it, but it does cost. It does cost. Because sociologists, psychologists say that Americans are the loneliest people in the world. Despite their busy schedules, despite their congested cities, despite their frequent interactions with human beings, we feel lonely. We're crowded and at the same time isolated. I'm talking about American culture and even ourselves as members of the body of Christ. How is it that we can be crowded and at the same time isolated? How is it that I can be lonely in a crowd? Three quarters of Americans live in metropolitan areas. And you guys are a part of that three quarters of American America. I live in one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States. That means we are surrounded by people. One thing that my wife said uh, that was different after she moved from Indiana to Tennessee, she said uh, it was hard at first to get used to hearing my neighbor's telephone conversations and knowing that they're hearing ours. So there's people everywhere. We're surrounded by people. We work with people. We shop with people. We have people in our apartment complex or neighborhood. We, If you go to the gym, you work out with people. There's people at the sporting events. There's people, people, people everywhere. Having access to people is not the issue. But the issue is you don't really know very many people, and there's not very many people that really know you. And if that's the case, that people don't really know you and you really don't know people, then you can begin to feel alone even when you're in a crowd. Amen? Now you may often be, often we are acquainted with many people, but we're known by very few. Or let me say it this way. There's many people in the world that are acquainted with many people, but known by none. They have no one with which they have a deep, meaningful, 
transparent relationship. And we are a culture that is craving relationships. Although we live and work in, a, in literally in a sea of humanity, we end up missing out on the benefits of regular, meaningful relationships. I'm not talking about somebody you see at work and somebody you run into at the store and hee-haw with for a minute. But I'm talking about regular, meaningful relationships. I believe that God is concerned about this. I believe this matters to God. This unhealthy reality that we see in our culture, in our world, is that community and relationships and true, deep, transparent, intimate fellowship is not a part of many people's lives. And so the next question is, is it all good? Is it all good? Maybe you've heard one of the teenagers say this before. Now, maybe it's passe now, but it used to be the cool thing. when you Say, uh, how you doing? They say, it's all good. <laughs> say, do you need any help? They say, no, I'm good. It's all good. The question is, is it all good in our world, in our society today? I believe that it's not all good because we were never meant to, to, to survive and to live in a state of functional isolation. It wasn't God's plan. For us our, or our neighbors to live in a state of being connected in a sense, interacting and being acquainted, but functionally being isolated from other people. God created us to be relational human beings. That's the way God created you and I. He created us to have a craving and a desire for deep and meaningful relationships. Amen? I have a quote here. Someone said this one time. I have never known anyone who was isolated, lonely, unconnected, and had no deep relationships, yet at the same time had a meaningful and joy-filled life. doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter how much education you have, how many books that you have. If you don't have meaningful, deep relationships, you're not going to have a meaningful and joy-filled life. Crowded loneliness was never God's plan. It was never God's plan for us to live in a city of multiplied millions of people, yet at the same time feel lonely. Amen? As I mentioned when we read the text, six different times in Genesis chapter 1, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. After all of His creative works, God saw that it was good. But then on the sixth day, the sixth creative day, he created human beings. And after the culmination of the creation of human beings, God said it was very good. Because the crowning achievement of his creation was when he created human beings. That's why human beings are set apart from the animals. That's why we are above them. And uh, we are as stewards of the earth. God, uh, when he created us, he created everything in the world for the crowning achievement of his creation, which is human beings. But in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, it's very interesting that God indicates that something is not right. Something is not good. While all of his creation is good, there's something that's not good. And the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. He says, I will make and help meet for him. Now this point here absolutely relates to the importance 
and significance of marriage, but I believe that it has implications that go beyond the fact that the marriage relationship is blessed and ordained of God. There are implications that go beyond. And the fact is that God puts a premium on the importance of our ability to connect well with other people. To not be isolated. And to not be lonely. I want you to get a picture here of what's happening. This is before sin had entered into the world. This was while mankind still had a beautiful, perfect, uninterrupted, untainted relationship with God, the Heavenly Father. Man had relationship with God, walked with God, if you would, in the garden, in the cool of the day. There was beautiful communion, relationship, and fellowship. There was no sin. Man was in perfect intimacy with God, but at the same time, God describes him as alone and indicates that this condition is not good. It's not good. See, we've heard it preached before, and it's so powerful and so true that God created you and I intentionally with a void inside of us that's God-shaped. You heard that one before? There's a God-shaped void in every human being. And that can only be satisfied by the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit of God. It can't be satisfied with drugs. It can't be satisfied with alcohol. It can't be satisfied with sexual activity. It can't be satisfied with success in the job. The only thing that can fill that spot in your life is God's Holy Spirit. And God created you and I that way so we would hunger and crave for Him. Amen? But I want to take it a step further and indicate that I believe that God also created in man a human-shaped void that God Himself chose would not be able to fill. In every person, there's a God-shaped void. There's also a human-shaped void. Human beings cannot fill the God spot and God can't fill the human spot. God's relationship with Adam, even though it was a wonderful relationship, still left man alone. And the indication is that this is not a good state to be in. And this need for deep, meaningful human relationship, just like our need for our relationship with God, this cannot be substituted with money, achievements, books, busyness, and not even God Himself. God said it's not good for man to be alone, even if I've got a relationship with him. And when your human-shaped void is not filled, it is not good. It stinks. When you don't have meaningful deep, transparent relationships with other human beings. Now, when people aren't in meaningful relationships, if they're lonely in a crowd, if they have maybe just one or two relationships, a, a spouse or a parent, but they haven't learned how to cultivate relationships, there are some costs. And in American culture, we have avoided People at all costs once we get off the workplace, but there is a cost because many times our workplace relationships are very superficial. Unfortunately, many times our church relationships are very superficial. 
because we only see one another when we come to church. And as far as intimately knowing someone, we're probably more intimate in our relationship with unbelievers than we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is a cost. There is, if you would, some negative things that happen, some things that we suffer in our lives when we aren't in meaningful relationships. And let's look at some of these. Some of these real quick. First of all, when people are not engaged in meaningful relationships, the result is they lose perspective on life, on life in general. Anybody know what the word objective means? What does the word objective mean? Uh, objective means purpose, but there's another uh, um, definition of objective. This is one that was really hard for me when I was in school, trying to keep subjective and objective apart. What does subjective mean? Subjective means it comes from me. Objective means it comes from outside. And if I don't have meaningful relationships with people, I'm perceiving life through my own prism, and I don't have an objective voice that's speaking into my life that calls me toward balance. If I don't have an outside voice, if I don't have relationships, meaningful relationships with people, I have no objective voice that calls me into balance. And as a result, I lose perspective on life. And my lows become lower than they should be. My highs become higher than they should be because my point of view has been clouded and my perspective has been skewed. I'm looking at everything through my glass and through my window and I'm not getting any perspective. Amen? That's why relationships are very important in life. And when I say relationships, it's not somebody that you know, just know them by first name and say, hey, it's good to see you. But it's somebody who you can open up your life to. And uh, amen. And, and they can open up their life to you and you minister to one another and care for one another. And so when you do not have these types of relationships, you lose perspective on life. And number two, the next problem is that you become spiritually vulnerable, open to attack unprotected when you don't have meaningful relationship. See, I don't want to get into a deep discussion here about accountability and knowing that there's somebody praying for you that recognizes your weakness and is looking out for you and you doing the same for them. See, we are in a spiritual battle. Do you remember? Brother Bryant mentioned just a moment ago that the devil wants to take us. He said, I would sift you, Peter. The devil wants to sift you as wheat. And so we're in a spiritual battle. And the first thing that Satan would like to do to you to get you where he can defeat you is to isolate you. And if the devil can isolate a Christian, then he can defeat and destroy that Christian. If he can pull you away from the group and pull you away from the pack and pull you away from people with whom you have meaningful relationship, then you are vulnerable to attack because sheep are never attacked in herds, only when they're isolated. We become vulnerable to the enemy when we are lonesome, but in a crowd. Number three, a negative result of isolation or lack of meaningful relationships is a growing fear of intimacy not wanting to really be real with people, being very guarded and not letting people in. Why? 
because of fear. Fear. Why would somebody fear intimacy or a close relationship? The reason is, is that sometimes if we're not in meaningful relationships, we tend to think that if others really got to know me, they really wouldn't like me. So I'm going to put my mask up. I'm going to put my staging up. I'm going to put up my false front that everybody likes, and I'm not going to let anybody get to know me. And they would rather stay disconnected than to face the possibility of rejection. Amen? Let me just throw this in. In marriage, it's very important. Intimacy is very important. And I'm not referring here to physical intimacy, but I'm referring to emotional intimacy, where both members of the marriage relationship meet one another's needs and essentially minister to one another in this state of unique intimacy. And some have said that the best preparation for marriage is participation in a small group because this participation in a small group forces them to be intimate and honest with a few friends, open with a few people. Fear of intimacy. Number uh, four, another negative product of isolation is selfishness. Selfishness. If my life is all about me, my schedule, my agenda, my needs, my desires, then I'm probably suffering from a good dose of selfishness. And where does that come from? Isolation and disconnectedness breeds selfishness, self-centeredness, being self-absorbed and self-centered, which creates a life that has no fulfillment. It's very narrow. It's very unfulfilled. We begin to just focus on our own need, our own deal, our own little family, and our own little worldview. This is not God's plan. The next one may surprise you. It is poor health. Poor health. See, they've done a lot of research. And they have discovered, here's one point. People who live alone are at a much greater risk of sickness and poor health than people who are connected with other people. The research indicates, check this out, listen. Isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. Can I say that again? Y'all still with me? You're like Some of you turned me off because you're like, I got my family. No, I'm connected. I'm not living my own little life. I've got my few friends. But I want you to pay attention and stay with me here. Isolated people three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People with bad, check this out. This is amazing to me. This has been proven. People with bad health habits and good relationships, strong, significant, deep relationships, lived significantly longer than those with great health habits that were isolated and didn't have meaningful relationships. You get that point? That's why I say it's it's better. It's better to eat Krispy Kreme donuts with friends than eat broccoli alone. Uh, there's a clinical psychologist, his name's Henry Cloud. I want to read a quote from him real quick. He's, he says, A person's ability to love and connect with others lays the foundation for both physiological and physical health. When we are in a loving relationship, a bonded relationship, we're growing. But when we're isolated, we're slowly dying. Just think of the plant kingdom. 
a plant is either growing or dying. There's no like cap point. Stop. Amen. The same is true of our organic spiritual growth. Growth as a person. We're either growing or we're dying. And the only way a person grows is through the context of meaningful relationships with other individuals. As Christians, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we need meaningful connections. When I say meaningful connections, I mean more than someone that you say hello, you say, how you doing? Praise the Lord, good to see you. Pat them on the back. These are casual connections, and casual connections are not life-giving. They don't cause us to grow. Casual connections won't do the work. Amen? And so these meaningful connections we need as Christians because I believe that when the church is connected with one another in meaningful connection, then we can begin to display Jesus Christ to the world. And before we're connected together in meaningful connections, we can't do it. And let me show you a verse of Scripture that, that forms the... These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 17 and verse 20. This is where Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, was praying. The man Christ Jesus, his human nature, crying out to God. Amen. Just like you and I would cry out to God. And Jesus in his human nature says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for believers, the church, that's going to take the message after Jesus is removed from the world. He's praying for those believers, and he says, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Just like Jesus in his human nature and God in his divine nature are one in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's all in Him. The fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, I want, amen, I want them that just like you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want them to be in me, in in us as well. In verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Look at this, verse 23. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Come on now. Hallelujah. Look at that in verse 21. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23. And it says, let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He's saying in essence, not until the body is connected and they're connected together and connected to me. Not until that point will the world recognize that Jesus' message was from God. Until you get connected with each other and get connected with Jesus, the world is going to think the message of Jesus was not from God. But once you get connected with each other in unity and get connected with Jesus Christ, then the world can believe that the words of Jesus were from God. Amen? 
That's essentially what the passage is saying. Our togetherness, our relational fellowship reveals who Jesus is to the world. Jesus is saying, in essence here, the credibility of my life, the credibility of my message in the eyes of the unbeliever is dependent on the way that we as believers relate to one another. If we're not close, if we don't have strong and growing relationships with one another, then the world is not going to see the message of Jesus that's shining through us. Amen? This is the call to unity, the call to togetherness, the call to relational fellowship. And then in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We heard this Repeat it again in the text on Sunday, Third uh, John. The commandment is, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now understand, that doesn't mean not hating my brother. That doesn't mean being cool with my brother. But that means having a deep, meaningful relationship with the members of the body of Christ. The Bible says this is how the world will know that you are my disciples because of the love that you have for one another. Amen? So this relational connectedness within the body of Christ that presents Jesus to the world and causes them to thirst after that type of connectedness. As a church, we need a means so that these relationships are developed. So every member of the body of Christ, every member of Life Church, everybody that calls this church their home church can begin to get a significant sense of belonging. That's what the church, that's what it means to be the church. Being the church does not mean attending here. Being the church does not mean saying I'm a member or calling that your home church. But being the church means having meaningful relationships that causes you to have a sense of belonging that you are a part of the body, that you are a part of this church. Amen? This is what God has called the church to be about. This is central to what it means to be the church. We as the church are called to create environments where authentic community can take place, where these meaningful relationships can be established, nurtured, and strengthened where people can grow in authentic relationship with other believers and then as a result begin to have influence with unbelievers, outsiders, amen, people that are not connected to the body of Christ, amen. And when the world, those outsiders, see us experiencing oneness with God and with one another in communities that are satisfying, it is compelling to them. And it creates thirst in the lost, in those unbelievers. Come on now. When they see Jesus in you, when they see Jesus in us, when they see, come on, that this oneness with God has caused us to also have a oneness with one another, it's compelling to them. And they're like, I want a part of this. I want to find out about this. I'm missing this in my life. Amen? So the question is, how do we create this kind of community? 
We have to be intentional because Life Church is a growing organization. This is a growing body. And when I came here, pretty much everybody was pretty close to one another. They grew up together. Their kids grew up together. But this is a church that is growing. We have people coming from different backgrounds, different nationalities, ethnicities, different religious backgrounds that are coming together under the cause of Jesus Christ and under the message of Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. With all of us coming together, how do we create this kind of community? Because it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. I believe the answer is, the answer is we've got to create environments where it happens. We've got to create intentional environments where this is going to be nurtured, where it's going to be encouraged, and where it's going to happen. I believe that you are growing spiritually in a sense as you sit here and hear the Word of God tonight. But there is a missing element of spiritual growth in our meeting tonight. Let me ask you this. Do you think by hearing the Word of God tonight you may be growing in your relationship with God? Let me ask you this. By sitting here and listening to me teach the Word of God, Are you growing in your relationships with other believers? No, you're not. Now, look at Sister Sister Anna, you and Janelle are sitting so close to each other. And you've sat close to each other now for how many minutes? A little over an hour? 35, 40 minutes. Yes, yeah, okay. You blew the whistle, amen. Uh... But here's the point. This time together, you guys have not cultivated or worked on a meaningful relationship, have you? Why not? You're not interacting. Why not? Your tension's tension's on me. Why is that? Trying to observe, learn. Your tension's on me. Everything that you're saying is telling me, telling me basically that our objectives here are different than objectives that would enable you to, to develop a, a meaningful relationship with Janelle where you guys could encourage one another in the Lord. And why is that? Because this is not the right type of environment. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, we're all facing the front. We're sitting in rows. We're looking at a Tennessee boy. This is not an environment that helps people grow in their relationships with each other. Now, I understand that in Life Church there is this craving for it. You don't understand it. You won't come out and say it. And when we introduce small groups, or some of you that are, you know, a little hesitant about it, like what's the use in this? Why can't we just come together on Wednesday night? Why do I have to open my home? But there's a crave. And if you don't believe it, when we let out service here in about 20 minutes, Come back about 45 minutes after that. And there will still be people sitting and visiting with one another. Why? Because there is a crave for meaningful relationship. There is a desire for this. So how do we create this kind of community? Real quickly, I want to go through three questions we have to ask. This is what we first what we talked about last week. The first question is, 
What do we want people to become? As a church, we've got a mission. What do we want people to become? Remember the Great Commission? Go and make what? Disciple. You guys are getting it, right? God has called us to make disciples. So what do we want people to become? Disciples, right? Disciples of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ. So our mission is very clear. We want to make disciples or people who are growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. So becoming a disciple, we talked about last week, it's not a destination or something that, you know, you complete a program and all of a sudden you're finished. Discipleship is about continuous, continuously progressing, amen, to, to demonstrate greater faith and greater surrender to the will of God, amen? So discipleship is not an arrival, like you finish this many classes, now you're a disciple, or you finish this process, now you're a disciple, or you come faithfully to church for a year, and now you're a disciple. No, discipleship is a constant process of growth, always moving the ball forward, always going to the next destination, to where I have greater confidence in God, and I have greater level of faith, and I'm, and I'm more surrendered to God. This is what discipleship is. It's a growing, continuous growth growing relationship with God. So we want people to become disciples. And to define a disciple, it means people that are demonstrating greater faith and living in greater surrender to the will of God. So if I'm the same place I was last year, I'm not a disciple. Only way I'm a disciple is if I'm moving the ball forward. If I'm getting greater surrender to God's will. Come on now. I'm learning how to say just like Jesus did, not my will but thine be done. Because remember our goal is Jesus Christ, the full measure of the stature of Christ. Amen. That's what spiritual maturity is. So I've got to learn to just like Jesus said, not my will but thine be done. I've got to learn to submit myself to the will of God. And I've got to have trust and faith in God that allows me to say, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Amen. So the first question is, what do we want people to become? Grow? Disciples, people that are growing in their faith, growing in their submission to God. What do we want people to do? That's the question. What do we want people to do? What is it that makes people spiritually? What is it that makes them into disciples? Do we need to put them through a number of classes and a lot of seminars? Amen. While education and teaching in the Word of God is very important, classes and teaching don't automatically lead people to spiritual growth. Come on, you can say, man, because you know it's true. Because I could plop somebody down in a seat and teach them all year. And maybe they would grow, but there's no guarantee that they're going to grow spiritually. Amen? What demonstrates a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? We've talked about this before. How can I tell that I'm growing in my relationship with Jesus? It's because I'm starting to love God more than I did yesterday. And I love him more than I did last year. But not only that, but I love my neighbor more than I did last year. Remember, they came to Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the rest of them lay on that. So if you want to be more submitted to obeying God's commandments, you've got to love God more. And you've got to love your neighbor more than you did before. Amen? Love your brother. Love the outsider more than you did before. Amen? This is a continual action. It's not like, okay, boom, now I love God, now I love my neighbor. No, it's a continual thing. 
The verb here uh, translated love, love your neighbor as yourself, is a continual verb. It's a continual action. And spiritual growth, hope you're getting this point, spiritual growth is a process. And spiritual maturity is measured by how much our love for God is growing and how much our love for others is growing. That vertical relationship with God and that horizontal relationship with brothers and sisters, both of them are If you're a growing Christian, if you're becoming spiritually mature, you're at the same time growing up and out. Growing closer to God and closer to... More in love with God, more in love with your neighbors. Amen? Hallelujah. And this is something we continually pursue. Just like if you want to be physically fit. It's not like, here's my goal. I want to be physically fit. And we push and push and work, and we finally got it. And we, how many knows that doesn't work? You may have some, you know, personal examples that that doesn't work. I got one right here. Amen. I've got proof, proof positive that that doesn't work, Pastor. It doesn't work. You don't get fit. You pursue fitness. Amen. So to sum it up, what do we want people to do? We want them to grow in intimacy with God grow in community with their brothers and sisters, and also grow in influence with other people on the outside. It's all about loving God and loving people. It's all about loving God and loving people. It's all about having more love for God, more love for people. Come on now. Amen. We preach this on Sunday. If you want to grow, you got to grow more in love with God, more in love with people. You don't just grow one way, you grow both ways. I don't care how much you're learning. If you're not growing in love with God and more submitted to Him and love people more, you're not growing spiritually. You're just stuffing your brain full of facts. So the next question, the final question, where does this happen? Where do I grow in love with God and grow in love with people? Where do I learn to love God more and love people more? What is the best place for this to happen? Where does this happen? Okay, that was the next question. Where does this happen? So uh, the final question, number three, that I don't know where it went to. No, it disappeared. Question number three is where do we want people to go? What do we want people to become? What do we want them to do? And where do we want them to go? If we want them to become a disciple and they become a disciple by loving God more and loving people more, where do we want them to go so that this will happen? What does home plate look like? What does the final step look like? Is it classes or new members' classes? Or is it Bible study where we sit together and study the Word of God like this? What is it? And here's a point I want you to listen to carefully. This is why we're moving forward, going into small groups. The best place for sustained life change is within intentional relationships. And the best place for encouraging intentional relationships is in a small group. In a small group. The best place to go is an environment where intentional relationships are emphasized. The place where intentional relationships are emphasized is not in Bible study, not on weekend worship service, but it is in small group setting. Amen? Uh, Because... Sustained spiritual growth is not nurtured in an environment where people simply sit in rows and listen to messages or lessons 
but aren't challenged uh, and uh, followed up with and made accountable to see if they're responding to it in their lifestyle. Amen? But spiritual growth happens where people are personally challenged and encouraged in their relationship with God and their relationship with other people in small group. Let's stand together for just a second. Uh, somebody turn that air back on. It's getting warm in this place. Amen. All right, stretch for just a minute. I've got another five. But uh, I'd rather teach people with their eyes open. God bless. Okay, sit down for another five minutes. Why small groups? Why do I believe small groups is this best environment? Number one, small groups provide fellowship. Fellowship. The Bible talks about fellowship. The Greek word that's used in the Bible that's translated fellowship. Anybody know the word offhand? Have any Greek scholars? Have any Greeks? The Greek word that's translated fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. You've probably heard that before. Koinonia. What does koinonia actually mean? When the Bible says fellowship, the word koinonia, which actually means putting good deposits into one another. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is not like a, a, you know, just a, a, a church get together. Fellowship is not a potluck supper. Fellowship is putting good deposits into one another, investing into one another, putting good things into one another. If you get that point, that's powerful. Amen? It's much more than visiting with people after church or even going out to lunch together. It's people actually pouring their lives into one another, making deposits in one another. If if you want to know what fellowship is, it's making deposits into one another. This is one thing I had a hard time grasping when I was younger, and they would talk about the importance of fellowship. I'm like, what? What? What's the importance? It's pouring your life into mine and me pouring my life into you, pouring our lives into one another. Amen? So small groups are groups of no more than 15 people. It gets larger than 15. It's not a small group anymore. That meet weekly in homes and share life together. Through a combination of fun and fellowship, Bible study, and prayer. This is what a small group is. Small groups provide this fellowship, this opportunity to pour our lives into one another. Number two, small groups share life together. Amen. You belong to a group that you know and you can count on, who can count on you no matter what struggles you may face. Amen. Some of you I know, in this church, if something happens tragic in your life, the only person you'd feel comfortable talking to is Pastor Brown. And at this point, that's not a problem. But when the church gets to 400 people in attendance, can you know that that would be a problem? Why is that? Because it'd be just overwhelming. And it's kind of, it's not a problem, but it's not God's plan. It's not a problem at this point, but it's still not God's plan. God's plan is that when you go through something in life, you've got close relationships with four, five, six, seven, eight other believers that are going to be there for you, that are going to minister for you, that are going to 
be there to reach out to you and, and help you. And uh, here at the end, I'm going to show you a little video clip of an actual small group experience that, that uh, experienced that. Amen. Number three, small groups change lives. Small group, the, 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 the setting of a small group changes lives better than any other ministry in the church. Because small groups become an incubator in which new Christians are bathed in love and care until they blossom and begin to grow. Did you hear that? It's a setting. It's a protected, wonderful setting for new believers to be in until they can grow and blossom. And finally, small groups are God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Anybody know Acts chapter 2? It's an important passage of Scripture, isn't it? Let's look at it. Acts 2.44. This is after the Holy Spirit was poured out. It said, All the believers were together, everybody say together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people wonder why the people, they had favor with the outsiders. Because the people could see their oneness with God and their oneness with each other. Amen? Favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. Daily. Not just every weekend, but daily. Those who were being saved. Notice here. Two places they met. Temple courts and the homes. Temple courts group, large group gathering in their homes, eating together, fellowshipping together, small group. God's original plan for the church was large setting where they got together and worshiped in the temple courts, small setting where they got together and fellowshiped from house to house. They met for corporate worship in the temple and they went to homes to continue studying what they had heard and to fellowship together. That lets me know that weekend worship and small groups are both important. They're separate experiences. They're different. We don't want you to go to your home and have another Sunday service. That's not what the purpose is. Amen? And small that, that's why small groups are never intended to replace the weekend worship service. There's a large worship setting where we get together and worship, but then there's a small setting where we get together and fellowship. See, here's the point. If we want to reach our world, we can't use the methods we've always used. Say they worked 20 years ago, they should work today. Wrong. We're working with a completely different set of people. Most people in the Los Angeles area under the age of 40 have not grown up in church. Amen? And they're not going to begin to worship and search for God until they feel accepted. They can come to our church. We're trying to get them to worship. We're trying to get them to respond. They don't feel accepted yet. They may not respond. Amen? They were raised different. The old way of doing business won't work. The old methods worked at one point, but they weren't designed for people with no Christian experience. Amen? The old models worked in their time when people came from a background of structure and absolutes. But now people don't come from a background of structure and absolutes. They come from a cynical background. And they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Amen? 
So we want to reach our generation. The way that we reach our generation is by letting them see the oneness of God in us and our oneness and connection with each other. I want you to see this video clip real quick. Uh, as we mentioned that small groups share life together, go through experiences together. And uh, this is an example of a uh, small group where a tragedy struck and they pulled together. Some of you may have seen this, but this is just a little picture. Well, on October 8th at 4.15, <laughs> I got a call from the hospital that said I needed to come see the chaplain, that Clyde had been in a very serious car accident. And I said, well, it's his life. <laughs> they said, yeah, but they didn't think he'd make it. So I called. Um, uh, she had just called us having heard from the hospital uh, to say that Clyde was very seriously hurt in an accident and that there was uh, a very real concern about whether he'd live. I think it was one or two in the morning when they came in and the doctor took me aside and uh, told me that Clyde would not make it through the night. And I said, well, I have my faith. And he said, well, you're going to need more than that. What a shock that was. That was an incredible shock. It was like a slap in the face. Everything that we had planned at that point to do, and we had a lot planned, suddenly went away. And there was only one thing that, that, that was on our minds, and that was to get to you as quickly as we could. Um, and we got down there right away. And for the next seven weeks, everything changed. He went into total organ failure, and less than 10% of the people make it from from that kind of situation. The next 21 days that he was in a coma, um, the group was always there. Someone was always there, and they were constantly praying for Clyde, and you could feel it. And we could share in this room that we were in, the ICU waiting room. We would go in and lay hands on Clyde. And there were times I didn't feel worthy enough to pray. I, I just felt like I just I couldn't pray. Words couldn't come to me at times. Um, but I also knew that when we would go in and lay hands on Clyde, it would give me a really peaceful feeling. I have been completely awestruck with the amount of uh, support that I have gotten and Janelle has gotten through this whole ordeal. Um, just since since I woke up from my coma, it's just this. Just I keep learning every day more and more about who was praying and. I could feel the prayers. I could, I could feel the uplift and God being there for us. And it's just, it's just been amazing, a completely amazing experience. That night in that hospital room, when I walked in there and you talked to me, I lost it because I never thought I'd hear your voice again. Uh, God's an amazing God. I think everything that we've all been through, just, it made it come alive for me. Uh, and it makes me look forward 
really to the challenges of just everyday living. You know, what's he going to do next? I feel eternally grateful, and there's not any amount of words I can say or express for the gratitude that I have in the, the prayer that went out and the unselfishness of each and every person. I used to think that the purpose of a small group was to get through the material. That's type A, right? typical of me. Let's see, what's the assignment? What are the questions? Let's go through it. Everybody answer. Did you do your homework? And I realized that when we start confronting real problems that people have, that every one of us have had, that, that the, the, the assignments weren't very important. What was important were the relationships. Let's stand together. Praise the Lord. Appreciate you being in the house of the Lord tonight and hearing the Word of God. And uh, we're going to be taking six weeks in October the, the 5th, and we're not going to be having our midweek Bible study. Instead, for those six weeks, we're going to be having uh, small group settings where we're going to hear a little Bible study that's going to be on a DVD format. And then uh, we're going to pray for one another, encourage one another. You're going to get a little taste of what small groups is about in these next six weeks. And then in the year of 2009, as we begin this next new year, we're planning to launch out into creating community in Life Church and ministering to one another and releasing this army. Amen. You've been in boot camp long enough. Amen. It's time to take it out and use what God's given you. Put it into practice. Put it into action. Minister to somebody. Encourage somebody. Lift somebody up. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. The opportunities aren't available necessarily in this environment, but the environment we're getting ready to create, every member is going to have to be a minister. Every member is going to need to be ready to minister and love and care and show kindness to every person. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, Lord God. Thank you for providing direction to us as a church, Lord Jesus, in the direction that we're moving. Thank you for giving us capable and passionate leaders, Lord Jesus, within our church, dear God, that are ready to serve, Lord, that are ready to minister, Lord Jesus, that are ready to give of themselves, Lord Jesus, so that they can see lives impacted and new people brought into the kingdom of God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this word, Lord, would get a hold of us and kind of affect and change the way that we think, Lord. Hallelujah. This is not Pastor Brown's church, and this is not just the leader's church, but this is our church, and this message was given to us. This gospel was entrusted to each of us, Lord God. Hallelujah. And we want to take it outside the walls of this church, Lord Jesus, and minister to people throughout the community, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Give us direction and wisdom as we move forward in this endeavor that you've directed us to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. Praise God. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.